Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Well, I don't know about you two, but I'm knackered at the moment. Your eyes look as though they've been bleeding for some bizarre reason. Yeah, it's it's been a fairly heavy work week trying to trying to get the last touches to the two-headed serpent done. Yeah, and you've moved out of your house, Scott, and into a into an office block just to get all this completed. Pretty much, yes. Yeah, I've you're taken... on a hot desk. Well, it's not a hot day. I've got a permanent desk now. I, I, I am one of the residents at the Milton Keynes Arts Gateway. Uh, so I, I sit there and, and write and edit all day. And that's what the institution told you it was called. <laughs> Fair enough, you know. That's good. I'm surprised he can write with a straight jacket on. Well, yeah. he, he I, tells I, us he's writing. I, I have a very flexible tongue. I was hoping it would be feet, <laughs> but no. <laughs> Well, it's about two years worth of worth of work between the three of us, isn't it? Pulling together this campaign. Yeah, I think so. About two years ago, since we pitched the idea, and um... yeah, yeah, because it must be. I mean, we spent a bit of time sitting around in in Busker's Cafe in Wolverton, bouncing around ideas. Then we went off and we spent what must have been about a year playtesting it, at least a year. Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah, it was kind of a staggered playtest, wasn't it? Um, yeah, between us, we we didn't all um, playtest it, you know, at the same time. Mm. Okay. And yeah, I think we've we've mentioned this on the show before, but in case we haven't, well, the Two-Headed Serpent is a, a pulp Cthulhu campaign that we're developing for Chaosium. Uh, I think it's actually going to be the first pulp Cthulhu campaign. I would think so. I know um, there are some sort of standalone pulp scenarios um, that have been written. So pulp Cthulhu coming out next year, hopefully followed up fairly swiftly by Two-Headed Serpent. Mm, yeah, and it was a. It really was a lot of fun to to run and play. Oh gosh, yeah, I, I had more fun GMing this than any campaign I can remember, and a big part of that was just how much fun Pop Cthulhu was. And it's it's a good solid rule set. It builds on what's in Seventh Edition, and then just adds a load of pulpy stuff on top. And I, I think we'll have to do a full show on Pop Cthulhu a bit closer to the time that it comes. Yeah, out. I oh, think definitely. So. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it really is a game of its own. Yeah. In, right, in 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 the way that it kind of changes, like you say, regular Call of Cthulhu, and you yeah. take the gloves off and uh, it kind of changes things a lot. Oh, God, yes. 100% more death rate to the square inch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was the old group, Matt. None of the rest of us use death rays, but yeah. Oh, they're in the book. <laughs> yeah. I'd run mine, give a bit of feedback. Scott would run his, give a bit of feedback. You know, our groups had struggled. They'd come up against, you know, some pretty fierce adversaries. How did your group go, Matt? Well, they got a death ray. (laughs) (laughs) How do they deal with this threat? They they, they, shot it with a death ray. Yeah, they flew up above it and blew it up like the White House on Independence Day. (laughs) Scary enough, that's how they did take out one particular building in the campaign. (laughs) (laughs) So... Yeah, I think Matt stretched the uh, stretched the de- definition of pulp to its limits. There. No, I just dialed it up to 11. A <laughs> you sure did, yeah. Before we move on to our main topic, it's just time for... 
And now, it's the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week's word is Stygian. Reminiscent of me still waiting for the Vita, for the Wraith 20th anniversary book to turn up. Stygia being the main city in Wraith. Ah. You know, any topic that we discuss, you can reflect it upon a Kickstarter in some manner. <laughs> yeah. And usually an overdue one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in which is just open any random book and pick a word, and Matt will tell us about the Kickstarter that relates to it. I think, well, when and we how run, it hasn't yet arrived. When we run out of Lovecraftian words, that's what we should replace the <laughs> <Yeah>. second. <laughs> I've got another one I could leap, leap in with, even with this. Right. Of course you have. Tell us what Stygian means, Matt. It's an adjective. One meaning gloomy and dark, or hellish and infernal. Very much like the gap in my bank uh, bank account after the Delta Green Kickstarter. <laughs> or relating to the River Styx. An interesting choice given the topic of this episode. Mm. Yes, it's, it's, it's almost like I thought this through. Now, this is one of Lovecraft's lesser used adjectives. He only used it six times in, in his main fiction. And he always used it in the capacity of meaning just dark. Which is appropriate, really. Not that he used it to mean the river sticks, because the river sticks doesn't really fit into the Lovecraftian, uh, what we understand as the Lovecraftian mythology, really, does it? Yeah, he could have used it in the infernal capacity, just as you know, sort of a comparison, but he didn't. From Dagon, urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyse, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. And from the festival, and in the Stygian grotto, I saw them do the rite, and adore the sick pillar of flame, and throw into the water handfuls gouged out of the viscous vegetation, which glittered green in the chlorotic glare. And from At the Mountains of Madness, at last a mighty metropolis rose on the bottom of that Stygian sea, its architecture much like that of the city above, and its workmanship displaying relatively little decadence because of the precise mathematical element inherent in building operations. That is such a Lovecraftian quote, isn't it? That relatively little decadence. Yeah. I want my architecture brimming with decadence, I tell you. <laughs> For tonight's topic... We look at a rather good mythos story, not written by an author I think many people in today's audience may have heard of, especially not so much in, in terms of the contribution he's made to the wider mythos, because he's more well-known, I think, for his other well, fantasy stories. Yes. I, we're talking, of course, about Carl Edward Wagner. If you're a serious horror fan, you're probably familiar with his name and you, you may well have read some of his work. Yeah, he died about 20 years ago, and I think... He is in danger of being forgotten by the larger community. His work still crops up in limited editions, like uh, Centipede Press put out uh, a collection of his horror stories recently. Yeah, if you got a few hundred dollars to spare to buy the bloody thing. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, Centipede Press, I would love to own some of their books, but I don't want to remortgage a house to do it. <laughs> Well, I, I bought the two-volume collection of Carl Edward Wagner's horror stories when, when they first put it out, and yeah, I didn't have to pay second-hand prices for it, so it was actually fairly affordable. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I know his name from, like you said, one or two Lovecraft con uh, collections. Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, for example. But when I went to look at my uh, original Grafton edition, I kind of flicked through it because you'd said it was in there, and damn it, it wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, it's only the recent reprints that have included it. Yeah, uh, but luckily I had got another edition, and, and sure enough, there it was. So it, it, I guess he's got quite a characteristic name, so I'd remembered it, but I, I don't think I've read much of his other stuff. I've only read one other story, uh, which is in the Haster cycle, uh, which is River of Night's Dreaming, which is a King in Yellow story. Yeah, so it's one of, I think, two King in Yellow stories he wrote, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly the better of the two. Have we actually said which story we're talking about? No, we haven't. But I, I think before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit more about Carl Edward Wagner. Sure. Let's take a look at who was Carl Edward Wagner. He was born in 1945 in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was probably more important to the horror community as an editor than a writer, uh, and certainly to the sword and sorcery community as, as an editor as well. I mean, that, that's not to downplay the, you know, the importance of the quality of the fiction that he wrote. But as an editor, he founded um, a publishing company called Carcosa Press uh, in 1974, uh, just after the death of August Ehrlich. Um, and his plan there, or at least the contingency he was putting in place, was that if Arkham House went down as a result of, of Derlis' death, then you know, Carcosa would step in and keep a lot of the pulp uh, writers in print, in book form. Mm. Uh, one, one that I know just on the list that you've compiled there, Manly Wade Wellman. Yes, yeah, I mean, Wellman and, and Wagner were friends, and um, he uh, certainly, you know, the, 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 I think the first proper book editions, or at least the first quality book editions of Wellman stuff that were put out were put out by, by Wagner. Because I've, been, I've been trying to complete the set of Nightshade books that they did a five-volume, much like they did with the Clark Ashton Smith stories. Mm. They did a set for uh, Manly Wade Wellman. And two volumes of his work, again, go for quite expensive prices. Mm. It seems to be quite a theme with authors in this kind of niche. Yeah. When we talked about the hospice, Robert Aikman, yeah. um, I remember we talked about him, and he had also been an editor and um, of, of numerous horror comp. Um, yes, the Fontana Books of Ghost Stories. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean... Wagner led something of a troubled life, and after his breakup with his wife in, uh, I think it was the, the mid to late 80s, he sort of spiralled into alcoholism. Uh, he'd already been a heavy drinker before, but unfortunately, you know, his drinking killed him at a comparatively young age. Uh, he was 48 when he died. Um, and so, you know, as a result, his body of work was, was really cut short, and a lot of his later work... I mean, it's patchy, let's just say. I mean, there's still some great stories there, but uh, yeah, I think his heyday was very much the 70s and 80s. As I said, though, Wagner was probably better known, at least in the 70s, uh, as a sword and sorcery writer and editor. He was the first person to, um, to, to re-edit uh, Robert E. Howard's work, uh, particularly the Conan stories and, and the Bran McMahon stories, and put those out uh, in a version that, that removed the rewriting that had been done posthumously by Lynn Carter and Els Sprague de Camp. Because for a long time, the paperback editions uh, that had been put out of, of Robert E. Howard, which was how I, I, I was introduced to them, were ones that you know, included a lot of additional material by, by Carter and uh, de Camp. That seems an odd thing to do. Yeah. And it certainly wasn't until the 1970s that in book form you could get uh, you know, Robert E. Howard as he first wrote it. Yeah, how bizarre. Hmm. 
Oh, I'd be interested to read his, uh, you know, his, his um, Conan book, though. Uh, yes, yeah, he wrote what you know. What for me is probably the only uh, non-Howard Conan book that's worth reading, uh, which is a novel called *The Road of Kings*. He was supposed to do a whole line of Conan books and was actually contracted to do so, but um, yeah, from some biographies or you know some biographical articles I've read of, of Wagner, it sounds like he had. A lot of, yeah, maybe it was the drinking, maybe it was writer's block or whatever, but he had a lot of trouble fulfilling the contracts that he signed up to do. And there's there's a long cycle you know, throughout his career of him being contracted to do various books and then just never delivering them. On the sword and sorcery front, the thing that he might be best remembered for today is that he wrote a series of uh, books, uh, of stories and a few novels, three novels, about a, a character called Cain, this sorcerer and swordsman, appropriately enough, uh, who may or may not be the Cain from the Old Testament, as in Cain and Abel, uh, who you know is cursed with immortality and is this incredibly morally ambiguous uh, figure. He's a protagonist, but you know a lot of his actions are pretty damn villainous. Uh, and. Yeah, I, I think he's one of the great sword and sorcery characters. I, you know, for me, he's up there with you know Michael Moorcock's Elric as as a you know a great sword and sorcery antihero. Hmm. And and happily, uh, all of the Kane books are now back in print. Uh, they they've come out recently as e-books. So if you like sword and sorcery and you haven't read them, take a look on Amazon and and you can find them fairly inexpensively there. The idea of an e-book being in print is a very weird statement for me to wrap my head around. <laughs> But obviously why we're talking about him on this podcast is that he was also a horror writer and editor. Uh, he published a few collections of horror stories, uh, two of them in his lifetime, uh, In a Lonely Place and Why Not You and I. And then there was one called uh, Exorcisms and Ecstasies, which came out posthumously. Certainly In a Lonely Place and, and Why Not You and I contain some of the best horror stories I've ever read, mm -hmm. uh, including the one that we'll be talking about tonight. Which is, as uh, we've not mentioned the title yet. <laughs> the one we'll be talking about tonight is Styx. Now, Styx was originally published, I believe, in 1974 in a magazine called Whispers. Is probably one of the easier uh, horror stories of Carl Edward Wagner's to track down these days because it's been anthologised all over the place. I mean, Paul mentioned Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. It's in The Dark Descent. It's in The Book of Cthulhu too, and you know, countless others. So, you know, if you're going to stumble across a Carl Edward Wagner story, it's probably going to be either this one or The River of Night's Dreaming. And, and both of them are excellent. And now let's take a look at the story itself. The first paragraph of Styx opens thus. The lashed together framework of Styx jutted from a small cairn alongside the stream. Colin Leverett studied it in perplexment. Half a dozen odd lengths of branch wired together at cross angles for no fathomable purpose? It reminded him unpleasantly of some bizarre crucifix, and he wondered what might lie beneath the can. And suddenly I've got flashbacks of um, the particular scenes from the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> we'll talk <laughs> about that later. Yeah. Oh, we, we will. <laughs> We're not actually sense enthusiasm in Scott's voice about talking about Blair Witch. What the hell? <laughs> Our protagonist, Colin Leverett, um, is a artist, I believe. Um, mm. He does lots of sketching and so forth. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, it paints quite a, um, a nice picture of him being this man who's um, gone off for that one last jaunt into the into the wilderness when he realises he's got his call up card for the um, to join the um, the army for part of the Second World War um, on his desk at home. So he decided, oh, I want to go up that river uh, that I've always been putting off for a while. So he's gone out with his sketch pad and frying pan dangling from his, uh, and his dangling from his and belt. And his trout rod, hasn't he, and, and all that. Yeah. And it really paints a good picture of it being, a, it kind of illustrates how it's a, 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 a kind of a place in the wilderness that not many people go, and, it, and there used to be a train track or something That's there, it, yeah. but it's kind of abandoned. Yeah, and, and, and this whole idea about it is how it's a place that, that was once populated, that once knew the touch of man, but nature is claimed back. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, isn't it a railway station or some or platform? Railway line, yeah. That was it. Where again, it's all been grown over, and that he wanders pretty much following the path of the old railway. And along the way, he sees these weird little stick formations that are seemingly scattered at random until he gets to a clearing where there's an old house. It should have been ridiculous. It wasn't. Instead, it seemed somehow sinister. These utterly inexplicable, meticulously constructed stick lattices spread through a wilderness where only a tree-grown embankment or a forgotten stone wall gave evidence that man had ever passed through. And these, as he calls them, meticulously constructed stick lattices, um, he finds quite almost um, compelling that he starts to sketch them all. Yeah, I think he's fascinated by them, isn't he? Because they're almost something that could have happened by accident, but clearly they couldn't have. They're just a few sticks. If you you see a few sticks, but these have. Why would somebody do that? Why well, would somebody put them together? That's yeah, the question the first that time, occurs to him. I think the first time he sees one, he wonders whether you know it's supposed to be holding up a you know no entry sign or something like that. Yeah, uh, and then realizes no. Uh, uh, and there's something about the construction as well that you know, some, that you know, the, the the nails and so on holding them together are all new. So yes, the, yes. these are obviously very recently created. Yeah, and created by the hand of man, unless um, the local deer has somehow worked out how to get nails and um, work out how to use a hammer <laughs> and nail. But he wanders on a little bit further and comes to a clearing where there's an old farmhouse um, on top of a foundation that looks evidently bigger than the building on top of it is intended to support. Mm. So think, hmm, something subterranean here. What's what's below ground? What whatever happened to um, what if anything bad ever happened to a Cthulhu investigator that goes underground? I ask. We <laughs> um, get more of these sticks around the house. He decides to go in, finds lots of like almost like blueprints of the um, of the stick constructions daubed on the walls. Think, ah, oh, some madman's obviously been using this um, place to work out his creations. And then he goes into the basement. <laughs> yeah, why did he go down into the basement? What what could possibly be down there to entice him to, to, to go there, really? Well, well I mean, we've seen in the story that he is compelled by these stick lattices, that he's going around drawing them all compulsively. He's obviously, as an artist, finding great inspiration here. And if this were a Trail of Cthulhu game, that, that would be, you know, his, his uh, what is it, artistic instinct or... Uh, artist- Drive. You know, no, 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 but it, the, the name of the drive First is... for knowledge? No, there's an artistic... Uh, is, is something like artistic instinct is one of the drives. So down in the cellar, he he's, he's kind of fiddling around in the dark... And yeah, he, he notices, doesn't he? A figure? Like, well, no, it's, it's, an, it's an altar or some stone like table yeah. he finds. With a, with a groove around it? Yeah. Yeah. Again, what's on us there? A slab of gnice. Hmm. 
Yeah, and it's just when you when you start cutting up all cheese or something, or you spill wine, then obviously the groove's got to take it away somewhere. So he's in the dungeon and he's attacked by a Lich. Well, it's not even attacked. It's just he grabs his arm and he's the one that then bashes its face in with his frying pan. Yeah, poor innocent Lich minding his own business. Someone comes along, disturbs it. Yeah, just grabs hold of his arm. Yeah, yeah. Do, do, do you mind? I'm trying to get some sleep here. Now, yeah. if this were if this were your scenario, and I was a player character, and I'd be like. You know, you've got this thing that's attacking me, and you say, and I said, well, I'm in the cellar, and you say, well, I'm going to hit it. What are you going to hit it with? Uh, I'm going to hit it with my frying pan. <laughs> well, where's your frying pan? I've got it tied to my belt. <laughs> I've got a cast iron skillet. Everybody's got one of those, haven't they? <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, he's, he's brought it along to fry fish and bullfrog legs. So, so he's walking yeah. around with a cast iron skillet hanging off his belt. It's good, good exercise. That's pretty good. Yeah. I was impressed with that. So he smacks the thing in the face. Yeah, doing like D six damage. <laughs> it's, first, it's only the first level of the dungeon, so D six <laughs> is enough to take it out. But it doesn't. He just he still hears it coming up the stairs after him. Yeah, yeah. But he does. Yeah, significantly though, he does cave part of his skull in. Well, he's kind of unsure afterwards, isn't he? Yeah. He's. I think he's kind of trying to convince himself it was just some homeless guy. I hit him. I, I probably didn't really kill him. Although well, I kind of think I did. Well, the light was pretty bad. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was a homeless person. He obviously wasn't some hideous monster. Still going to have nightmares for years about it, though. So all of this, perhaps, so far may sound maybe not overly fanciful, but it certainly sounds like invention. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, except with the possible exception of the strange encounter with the, the lich in the cellar, all of this is actually based on, on real experience. There was an artist who did a lot of work for Arkham House and for Carcosa Press uh, by the name of Lee Brown Coy, and he told this story to Carl Edward Wagner that basically all of this had happened. I think about the only difference was it took place in 1938 instead of 1942. And he had gone out, you know, again to go fishing in upstate New York and had found all these stick lattices all over the place. And, the, you know, there was the ruined farmhouse and everything like that. And there were just, you know, the, these lattices everywhere. And so, you know, Coy, you know, being an artist... Um, just sketch them all exactly as Leverett does in the story. Uh, and also, as we'll, we'll come to see in the story later on, uh, Coy uh, used these as the basis for illustrations uh, for books that he, he did for Arkham House and I think as well for Carcosa Press. And, and you know, they, this recurring motif of these stick lattices just punctuate his work from that, from that point onwards. As can be seen in the show notes, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> if I can find any pictures. Oh, I did. Yeah, I, oh, I found good. a few because I wanted to have a look at them. So they're, they're definitely out there, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. The story is divided up into chapters. I mean, this isn't a very long story. Well, it's 20 or 30 pages, but it's divided up into a number of short chapters. So we cut to the next chapter, and he's talking about it's after the war. Um, Leverett has returned, and people, you know, have noted that he's a changed man. He's um, somewhat haunted, perhaps because of the war, but... It's really because of this experience at the house and it still haunts his memories. His artwork changes and becomes more gruesome and horrific as, as a result of his uh, experience. And even some of the, the pulp magazines and weird tales which he actually mentions uh, start turning down some of his work because it's even too gruesome for their readers, they say. Just a few decades early for heavy metal um, album covers. 
<laughs> but it does mention that he, he ends up finding, you know, steady work, uh, doing gallery showings, you know, doing sculptures and paintings for galleries and, and special commissions. So, you know, obviously, you know, even even the 1940s, there were a few weirdos around. Moving ahead 25 years, so this does take a bit of a jump. Yeah, we're in 1970 yeah. now. Yeah, almost the modern day. Yeah, well, the 70s, not much has changed. No, not really. <laughs> um, he's contacted by an old friend of his from the pulp days, one Prescott Brandon. Weird name. It's almost like he's just first two first names put together. <laughs> <laughs> Who could that be? Yeah, well... Again, almost every character in this is based on a real person. And in this case, the you know, Pre- Prescott Branton, or Scotty as he's referred to you know, from there on in the, the, the text, seems to be a mashup of two real people. Uh, the first is Farnsworth Wright, uh, who was the editor of Weird Tales, who published a, a lot of Lovecraft's work. Prescott Branton's house is called the Eerie. Uh, is a bit of a nod uh, to Farnsworth Wright. The Eerie was the name of the editorial column in Weird Tales, which Farnsworth Wright wrote. Uh, and it seems to be a mixture of him and August Derleth, because you know, a lot of, it seems that Gothic House is sort of perhaps partly a nod to Arkham House and, and partly a, a nod to Carcosa Press. Gothic House being the fiction imprint that Preston uh, Prescott Brandon is the editor of. Yes. Of course, um, Scotty, as you say, he's then then known as from there on in, contacts him saying that I'm going to be producing a limited edition collection of an author you used to like, um, Kenneth Allard. Uh, H. Kenneth Allard. Oh, H. Kenneth Allard, that's him. Um that he's going to be wanting some illustrations for said limited edition books. The way he describes them, that's the kind of book I would put, I would shell out to buy. <laughs> it does sound an awful lot like the Arkham House collection of Lovecraft's uh, stories, because those were three volumes, yeah. uh, the original ones. And I don't think that's an accident, because in there are a lot of details as the story goes on about H. Kenneth Allard that make him sound an awful lot like he's based on Lovecraft. Even though Ken Allard, unquote, yeah. um, was a pseudonym that Wagner used when writing a very different type of fiction. Yes, well, I, so if you do recognise the name, this might be why. <laughs> yeah, I, he well, he used the name Ken Allard for a lot of things, but the main one he used it for was his pseudonym when he was writing pornography. Um, chicken wow. <laughs> I, apparently his friends didn't know about this. I, uh, I, I was reading, uh, again, another little biographical uh, memoir from, from one of his friends who was talking about clearing out Wagner's house after he died and what was the bit about you know, g- getting rid of all the stuff that his family one, one wouldn't want to see before, <laughs> before they went in. And um, in the process, he discovered an envelope that had uh, three pornographic novels in it uh, that were obviously contributors' copies and the bylaw on them was was Ken Allard, huh. and you know no one had known you know during his lifetime that Wagner had written these. It'd be interesting to see if they were at all influenced by you know uh, Lovecraft or, or Conan or something like that. <laughs> if he managed to get some of that into the pornography, the, the mighty chopper of Conan. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a sword or are you just pleased to see me chop? <laughs> I do quite like that one of the instructions that he gets regarding the illustrations is that he's told to avoid the stereotypical bats and skulls that are quite 
um, in keeping with lots of horror pre um, books at that time, especially considering that the front cover of both the hardback and the softback of In a Lonely Place, where this is featured, has a skull on the front cover. <laughs> I, I remember some years back, I went to uh, the Alt Fiction Festival up in Derby when, when that was still running, and there was a panel of horror authors on there. Um, I can't remember the exact topic they were talking about. And uh, one of the authors was Tim Lebin. And he was talking about the fact that uh, his new novel at the time, The Everlasting, had just been published. And he just, I think he just had the proofs through, uh, or at least he just had his contributor's copy through uh, from the publisher. And you know, he, he was just looking around for commiseration from the author, from the other authors on the panel and from the audience, saying, they put a fucking skull on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, throughout the rest of the talk, every now and then, every time there was a lull, he'd just be there shaking his head. They put a fucking skull on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's kind of indicative of a lot of little in-jokes into the... Um into that circuit at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this, yeah, this is a story full of in jokes and references and nods. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so if you know your pulp history, this is a glorious story. But yeah, even on the surface, it doesn't have much of that comedic tone. It is plays a very sort of down the line, straight oh, yeah, mythos yeah, horror story. Yeah, it's not a comedic tale. No. No. No, no. no. We, when when I say yeah, when I say in jokes, I mean sort of yeah, wry asides to, to yeah. people in the know, but they they don't make it a funny story. So Colin uh, submits his illustrations, Preston Brandon, who comes back with the the feedback. Why are you drawing all these insane sticks? What is up with you, man? <laughs> but but he also says that he loves them. You see, uh, sort of yes. Why are you drawing all these these insane sticks? They really creep me out. I love them. Keep doing them. And by the way, because they creep me out so much, I forwarded them on to a friend of mine. Yes, Alexander Steffoy. Who, again, is based on a real person. Uh, someone I wasn't familiar with. He was a real folklore expert at the time called Andrew Rothman, uh, about whom I know almost nothing. I, you know, it's just when researching the story, I found a reference to him as the inspiration for, uh, for Steffoy. Uh, Alexander Steffoy then gets in touch with our, uh, our Mr Leverett, the illustrator, and tells him that he's very interested in these stick figures and that uh, they seem to link into tales that he's heard elsewhere, tales of a group called the Brethren of the New Light who believe that the world is to be destroyed by powers from outside the universe, um, but that the Brethren, the Brotherhood, would obtain immortality and those that have already died prior to the, the arrival of the... Uh, the powers from outside, would be preserved on stone slabs until the old ones return. Cough, cough, sounds like a lich, cough, cough. <laughs> but also, yes, I mean, this is where the story starts showing its Lovecraftian influences, you know, absolutely front and centre. By the fact of old ones pretty much gives it away. Yeah. And role-playing-wise... That's definitely a handout, isn't it? You've just <laughs> got this bit. Here's this massive information dump about some cult that worships something just like what you saw in the previous chapter. Yeah, and again, like a lot of handouts, there is a lot of extraneous information. There's a lot of stuff that beds it into real-world history. Yeah. I mean, this is actually a very good bit of research and verisimilitude on the part of Wagner here, and it really did feel like historical research. He talks about Bronze Age uh, culture coming over to um, the Americas in I don't know, 1500 BC, something like that. Mm. Yeah, Neolithic practices and so on. 
Thinking of it, there are, there are a lot of letters and correspondence that form a large body of the text. All of those would make great handouts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's petitioned to uh, return to the um, the house, isn't he? Really, he wants mm. to go back and kind of verify this stuff. But when he goes back there, he can find no evidence of it. It's been there's been a flood. It's been washed away. Well, it's not just that that's been washed away. The whole landscape has mm. changed as a result yeah. of heavy flooding. It's part of he wants to try and find the exact location of where the house was. Yeah. yeah. And again, this is something that Wagner just lifted from life. Uh, Coy himself went back to do exactly this, to try to find traces of the lattices and find out a bit more about them. And uh, yeah, th there have been floods and you know, exactly that. The landscape had changed. There were no clues left. Because he was too scared by the lich to pick up the sticks in the first place. <laughs> but then, dun-dun-dun, bad news. Prescott Brandon of uh, Gothic House Publishing has been murdered by intruders, curiously. I, and in an exceptionally brutal manner. Yes, but at least they got the limited edition books out first. But then, fortunately, he's visited by Dana Allard, who is Kenneth Allard's uh, nephew. Uh, he has a manuscript um, of his uncle's that, that he wants to, to publish. So this, you know, paralleling our figures here, this is a, a lost manuscript of H.P. Lovecraft that his apparent nephew wishes to publish. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, very obviously a collection of Allard stories. It's all handwritten, you know, manuscripts in his handwriting. Yeah, which the, uh, which Leverett can verify is, is uh, uh, Allard's handwriting indeed. And he wants uh, he wants the whole collection of these stick images to, to go in. Everything that um, Leverett's got, he wants to put into this book. Yeah, and, and the little bits that are thrown into you know the, the the story about the content of this manuscript, you know, make it sound well a very Lovecraftian. But then b there's you know th th there's this nice little element in there. There's you know the sort of analog in this story for the Necronomicon, which is called mm. the Book of Elders, mm -hmm. and is the idea that in these stories that Allard has you know, gone beyond just hints and so on and has started reproducing large sections or you know, uh, uh, transcribing contents of uh, the, the Book of Elders and putting those in the story. And just gibberish, which he even claims he translated. Colin Leverett, you know, he, he works his fingers to the knuckle producing these pictures uh, and whether he's just tired or haunted by them, he starts to suffer from nightmares. He sees that, that cellar and then the face again. Um, and, he, it, you know, it seems like he's getting in a pretty bad way. This particular section reminded me a lot of Dreams in the Witch House, um, mm. to a degree, because, he, because he's focusing so much on these stick lattice formations that he begins to get an inclination of what they are, that they are a three-dimensional form of language. Um, that letters, instead of being written in two dimensions on paper, what if a letter or word or concept could be extended into a third dimension? And that he then sees himself almost weaving through these um, was like lightning lattices in space that he, he can't comprehend what's being said, but just continues to float between one and the other. And again, this is a wonderfully Lovecraftian bit of the story. And this is one of the best bits of cosmic horror I've ever read. Uh, because it it is that sudden realization of the grand scope of things of seeing you know new vistas and realities opening up and see, you know seeing behind the veil of reality and the concept that man thought what a man understood suddenly takes on a whole new dimension. 
Mm. Of course, this isn't the only nightmare that he has um, in connection with his feverish work on all these on all these sticks. Um, he sees himself crawling through tunnels, crawl, um, crawling into this chamber, which is very much um, a recreation of the chamber that he meets the Lich in at the start of the story. Um, except it goes further that he is ultimately sacrificed on the table and gets to know rather firsthand what all those grooves were about. <laughs> in fact, he does get into the groove. The, these dreams ultimately culminate in almost a blurring of is it a dream, is it a nightmare, or is it reality? When, again, a twist on the um, rep repetition of crawling through these tunnels and emerging into this chamber, he sees himself reaching down as performing part of the sacrifice and finds himself waking up with a, uh, with a removed heart, partially eaten heart in his hand. Yes, yeah, there, there's, there's no denying at this stage that you know, things are getting out of control and, and very, very weird. For I was a little confused here. So he has actually got a piece of flesh in his hand, but... You know, has he been going off to this this other place? Because that was a long way away. I mean, or has he just been travelling interdimensionally, or has he just been going into some kind of dream world? It was, yeah. it wasn't really apparent to me what had happened here. Again, very uh, dreams in the witch house. Well, yeah, I, and that for me is part of the strength of the story: the fact that you know that it is so completely ineffable. Because if anything, in uh, it was really holding my attention the first time I read it. It was really holding my attention. The dream bits. I just kind of found myself drifting. Really? Yeah, I just okay. I didn't find, I didn't find the writing held my attention. Oh, that, that, that's because the lich was inside your head and and actually controlling your thoughts and your dreams at that stage. Yeah, and then I had to go and wash all the blood off my hand. Mm. <laughs> In between these dreams, he receives a letter from the doctor saying that he's found he's done some more research about these things and that they were used in dark evil rites and such. Um, by some brotherhoods that have been active in the area for uh, for a fair while, and that he's found some. Um, obviously, he can't say where they are because he's had to break into some place. Um, he wasn't given the access rights to go in there, so he won't incriminate himself. But I did something really illegal. Ha ha ha! Investigator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Someone that's evidently going to meet when they're doing when they say, "I am going to go back to that place tonight. I'm gone now. I may be some time." <laughs> But yeah, the important thing is that the lattices he find are newly constructed ones. Mm. Indeed, and that's the last we hear of him. Well, apart from the, the radio report. Well, yeah, saying that, oh, tragic accident. Yes, obviously crushed. Mm. Accident. Mm. Yes, a huge block of granite fell on him, crushed him, and you know we've identified him by personal effects. Mm. He might have been missing a heart or part of one we didn't <laughs> say. Then Mr Leverett gets a message from Dana to say that the books are ready. The new books, the ones the that new are books. Yeah, the yeah there's been some new... trouble with printing. Printers had kind of, you know, mysterious, horrible things had happened along with the uh, uh, to some of the printers, and it had been shifted around to various companies. But ultimately, the books are ready, and he goes around there, and Dana's like, "Oh yeah, come in, come in. Where are the books? Oh, got them in the cellar." As you do, as you do. Yeah, when you get a lot of big, heavy books, you tend to take them down underground where it's you know nice and damp through a narrow passageway. Yeah, yeah. down the old stone steps. Mm -hmm. to, to come where, on, come to take where, a look. To where there is a mountain, as it's described, of wrapped books down there. Mm. Yeah, which I, I can just imagine Matt salivating over. He's probably like just finished the Kickstarter. <laughs> you know, probably you know like finished it quite a while ago because he's now got the books in his cellar, <laughs> and he's like, oh my god, the postage is going to be enormous on these. Hang on, a Kickstarter having problems with postage and having um, having problems with printers? Yeah. Nah! <laughs> yeah, this is clearly fantasy. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's all fiction. 
And then we have the big revelation with the signature of the book. Dun, dun, dun. What is it, Scott? What, what? What, what? Yes, you know, Dana has signed the book and he signed it H. Kenneth Allard in what is very obviously Kenneth Allard's handwriting. Well, I'm stuck dumb. <laughs> <laughs> that revelation was too much to handle. So H.P. Lovecraft never died. No, he just became a cultist. <laughs> a cultist trying to bring about the return of the great old ones. I do like the idea that the patterning of the lattice works, that our dear artist friend, like a good proto-investigator, bimbles into a situation, completely fucks up the whole thing so that it, instead of bringing about the old ones, brings about a cataclysmic storm that nearly kills everyone and uh, wipes the slate clear. Um, it's part of a pentagram miles wide and that it's part of this huge configuration and pattern that you wouldn't see unless you uh, see the grand horror of, unless you plotted out all in intricacy on it on a map somewhere. Yeah, and this is all explained to him at the end, isn't it? Yes. So before you die, Mr Bond, <laughs> I'm going to have a monologue. Let me explain to you the, uh, the massive uh, pentagram that this was part of. He's thanked for um, having done such intricate drawings and having such a great memory of all these things because he wouldn't have been able to recreate it without them. Yeah. now in these books for lots of people to read about and yeah. uh, you know fill their minds with. Because yeah, th there's that revelation there that they were close to the culmination of the ritual, you know, 25 years ago, when uh, Leverett had stumbled across uh, this sorcerer lying there on the slab by the name of Altholm. Uh, and had disrupted the whole thing at the last minute by caving his head in with the frying pan. Because it was made of iron. Exactly. <laughs> but now uh, they found a better way of doing this, that by reproducing all these glyphs and sending them out in the books, that instead of relying on the physical artefacts, they're now planting the idea of them in the minds of all the readers and creating a greater lattice than they could ever have created with sticks suddenly makes you think that dead tree copies of books for spreading these things are really evil. It's almost <laughs> like promoting the concept of an e-book decades early. So never mind dynamite, I'm going to get Le Creuset Pam <laughs> and carry it with me all the time. It's a bit on my lucky rock. <laughs> I had. Yeah. But yes, the story ends up with Allard's associates coming out of these little alcoves and tunnels in the cellar, all these shambling undead forms uh, coming out to reunite uh, with, with Paul Leverett uh, and lead him off to turn his dreams into reality. He'll have a starring role. And now we discuss Sticks appearing in other media. There haven't been any direct film or TV adaptations of Sticks so far. I, Which is a shame, really. Yeah, I mean, it is quite a visual story, and you know, for all the... Uh, for all the stuff we talked about with the historical stuff tucked in, you know, what would be handouts and so on, I think it would actually translate quite well to the screen. Um, but so far, it's only been adapted to a radio play back in the 1980s. Um, Is that the one that's... Because I've seen one on online, but I couldn't track down a copy of it that was, that was recorded in binaural surround sound. That, that which, was the one, yeah. Uh, of uh, Paul of Cthulhu, Paul McLean of Yogg-Sothoth, well, uh, you know, he was a big fan of that. I don't know if they still... I don't think they record in binaural now, but that was pretty effective, actually. Mm. I can remember listening to it in my pottery shed and um, think, well, that you know very well. <laughs> and sitting down one morning listening to Paul McLean on, on your, your radio and uh, listening to it on headphones, there was some... I think maybe somebody knocked at his door and it sounded just like it was on the door behind me. <laughs> yeah, it freaked me out. 
<laughs> it was that and the fact that you could feel his breath on the back of your neck. Yeah, well, that was all. That was all part of the you know the extra service. Yeah, they used to record with a, a not actually a human head. It was made of polystyrene, oh, I think. Yeah, I, I with the dragon meat. Yeah. That's with the, with the I know. Well, they, they they painted it white to make it look like it was polystyrene, I right. think. Yeah. Uh, and then they had the microphones in the ears. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember seeing oh, it at nice. Dragon Meat one year. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty cool. But while Styx hasn't been adapted directly, God, that lattice imagery has turned up in a few places, hasn't it? Yeah, well, I, I guess the first place I encountered it was in the masterpiece, which is the Blair Witch Project, which I'm sure is something we can all agree on. Edit point here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can all agree that it's a film called The Blair Witch Project. <laughs> I think the figures there were different because they are, they, they are some of them do look a bit like human figures. Yeah. And that's kind of what I had in mind first time I read Sticks. But actually going back and, and looking at it, they're not. They're, they're just no. kind of crisscrossed patterns of, of, uh, <laughs> of, of Sticks. And indeed, yeah. the ones in Blair Witch, they're not all... Um, necessarily shaped like human figures. Some of them sort of are a bit. Um, some of the others are just bundles of, of sticks. Uh, and indeed, one of the bundles, um, one of the characters opens up in the night, I think there's a bundle of sticks, and it's got it's blood teeth and or teeth yeah. or some flesh. some flesh in there. Yeah. Again, you know, like in sticks, these things are everywhere. They seem to form part of a sort of larger working of some kind or yeah they're certainly there serving a purpose they're kind of at once threatening but why are they threatening i think if it was somebody dawdling on the wall we're going to kill you or something like that or you know that's 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 pretty clear but but these sticks it's like well what do they mean i can't understand what this means but it's obviously somebody's made them but why would they make them and that's yeah i think that's exactly why they obsessed lee brown coy in the first place that's why they're so effective in those early parts of sticks because yeah these are strange devices or things that people have made which like you say serve no obvious purpose but they've obviously put a lot of work into them they've done a lot you know they've made a lot of them so they're obviously doing something you can't understand what it is and whatever it is because it's out there in the woods and the wilds because it's got this sort of magical pagan feel to it whatever it is you know it feels ominous Mm. I think the the other major place where it appears that uh, we'll discuss um, is more in keeping with the story um, than it is with Blair Witch. Uh, of course, turns up in the TV series I was very disappointed by in the end. Um, True Detective. Hmm. Uh, whereas I really like series one of True Detective. I've still yet to catch up with season two. But... You're not missing much. No, I've, I've not seen season two. But you know, I, I was under the impression that season one would have been a good King in Yellow cosmic horror story, and I was very disappointed. Oh, I, th- I thought it still was, but anyway. <laughs> but that, that, that may be a topic for another show. <laughs> but yes, yeah, they crop up all over the place in, in True Detective series one. Uh, when they find the body in the beginning, uh, it's got a few of these, these lattices around it, and they crop up elsewhere. And... Certainly the characters in it, or when they do a bit of research, they seem to find a bit of local folklore about them, that they're they're part of this sort of southern Louisiana hoodoo culture, and there's something there called devil traps, which I'm... Yeah, I mean, if if anyone who's listening knows otherwise, I'd be interested to hear. I'm under the impression it's something that Nick Pizzolatto made up for True Detective, you know, inspired uh, very much by Styx. 
I wouldn't be surprised it's made up because if it was something that was in folklore already, you bet someone else would have latched onto it and used it as an idea before then. I, and also, but, someone probably would have made you know the the reference between that and Steaks. Yeah, but the fact is that that artist Coy went out and found them in reality, yeah. so he didn't make them up. So they were it was something that somebody was doing. But whether it's a, a more widespread thing is 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 open to question, and quite what it was for, I guess, is is debatable. But it's also something that someone was doing thousands of miles away from Louisiana. Yeah. Let's take a look at what we can take from sticks into our games. As we are a podcast about gaming, what can we loot and steal here, chaps? I think one of the first things that we can learn for gaming from this is the power of recurring motifs. This is something that they touch on in Unknown Armies, the idea that your campaign or game or whatever should have a few motifs that turn up. This could be just something like your condensation on windows dripping or something like that, or the colour green or whatever. Yeah, again, these lattices, you know, cropping up in various places or, or things that remind you of the lattices or, you know, strange um, combinations of, of angles and lines. I think the key thing for me is to... To not feel that you've got to put in monsters and, you know, blood and gore and, and stuff like that to make it freakish. Because often those yeah. things don't actually make it feel freakish. They just make it feel, oh, there's a monster. I need to go and hit it or <laughs> run away or, you know, there's blood. Obviously, there's been a murder. But when there's more, um, you know, just odd things which are kind of inexplicable. Well, they don't have to be inexplicable to you as the keeper, but when they're presented just as perhaps seemingly mundane on the surface, but not what should be there. Yeah, it's the fear of the unknown. Yeah, yeah. and that can be manifested in quite uh, minor ways, really quite subtle ways. In fact, yeah, I was reading um, an essay by Carl Edward Wagner earlier today, and there was a quotation in it which is very, very applicable to this, where he was talking about Robert W. Chambers. He said... Chambers has been regarded as a writer who set up a deliberate barrier to final comprehension in his finest horror stories, and this is the stuff that nightmares are made of. I mean, this is something we touched upon when we were talking about Robert Aitman before. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that, you know, th those things that don't quite make sense to you, those things that your mind can't quite grasp hold of. And, Unexplained, uh, ambiguous. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not just that, but it's things that you're, you're kind of turning over in your mind and trying to make sense of, and the pieces never quite fit together. <laughs> That's nightmare. Mm. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, but I think this is a problem with a lot of role-playing writing, and I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anyone else, which is we're pretty much driven as writers and, you know, as keepers, you know, running your own stuff, to have explanations for everything in our backstories. You know, this is happening because this is, you know, this is why this happens, this is what this means, and so on. Sometimes just a series of motifs and, you know, the, the, those inexplicable elements are, are just going to be much more frightening if they don't necessarily mean anything. And, you know, I, I, I think we should be much more ready to embrace that in gaming. The other interesting thing when you're thinking about running games is the way in which this story is framed as well. So we have it starts in 1942, then it skips to after the war, then it skips... 25 years later, since 1970, in the early 70s, it covers a big span of time, whereas in our games, often it's all just, you know, crammed in. So from a, a gaming point of view, you know, if you were running this kind of story, what's to stop you having a, an intro in the Second World War, 
bit of world walk Cthulhu, Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew you'd like that. And then, <laughs> and then skipping forward to uh, the 1970s. Oh my God! You could do a Cold War scenario. This honestly <laughs> to the Cold War uh, with the same characters. Yes, no, but not necessarily. You know, but just you know, skipping a few decades. That's you know, yeah. that's that's an interesting thing when you keep the same characters but change them a bit. I mean, that could be quite an interesting thing for a one shot as well, just to unexpectedly throw at the players. Mm. Just doing a bit of scene framing that you do all that bit, and then you know, so you you just say right next scene twenty. Five years later, and everyone's going, what? Hang on, there you go. Do I get any skill advancements? <laughs> well, you, you did that in one of your, your scenarios, didn't you? That uh, the Wild West one. Yeah, but... the Wild West one, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's one of the things you can play with is kind of, um, you know, what people remember of it as well. So I had some details that are a bit hazy purposefully in the first part so that when they play the second part, you know, it's not all quite nailed down exactly where they were and quite a, who they were even necessarily. Um, but now they're playing characters several decades on. Mm. And one of the things I've really liked about this story as well, which I I haven't seen much use of in, in Call of Cthulhu, but could be quite an interesting approach, is sort of the metafictional aspect of it. The fact that this is not only a mythos story, but it's sort of a story about the mythos and about Lovecraft... Uh, and about these elements, but to a degree of remove, and, and sort of playing with the reality of them, and you know, it, I think that's quite a hard trick to pull off without it see, feeling a bit, bit kind of cheesy. I mean, he he does it well in this story. Mm. I think it it works here, whereas I've had it in some other authors that sort of make an attempt at this, but it, it yeah. feels a bit contrived. Well, that, that, that whole idea that, yes, Lovecraft you know, knew the truth of the mythos and was mm. writing about experiences on, yeah, that, that is about hackneyed now, but this, you know, this is, I think, a much more interesting take on it. It's the fact that you know, it's not Lovecraft explicitly, but it's very much inspired by him and sort of using that idea of, of pulp and mythos creation as the, the, this sort of metafictional tool for actually you know, bring you about the horror. Another thing that particularly impressed me about this was the fact that you, you do have this cult operating in the background. At various points during the story, they bump off central characters in, in various unpleasant ways. But it's the fact that, you know, may, maybe it's because it happens off screen, maybe it's because they're an unseen uh, presence that the protagonist doesn't really know that much about. But they feel threatening to me in a way that perhaps, you know, cultists and a lot of Call of Cthulhu games don't. I don't know, I sometimes feel that, certainly, you know, there's the risk in some Call of Cthulhu games that your cultists just end up being, you know, kind of mooks. wacky wacky mooks in funny robes, uh, as opposed to, you know, this, this real malevolent threat. They do seem powerful, almost as if, to some extent, they're hiding in um, Leverett's dreams. Because that's the only place where you see them, apart from when he hits it with a frying pan. And finally, what do we think of Sticks? Well, I don't know about you two, but I, I loved it. I, I think it was a great story. Definitely one, definitely one of the best non-Lovecraft mythos stories I've read for a long time. It was a good one. I felt that his writing was really good when he was describing going into the, you know, into the backwoods and, and finding the sticks and stuff. The, the encounter with the Lich, I then sort of felt, what the hell? Because it felt really pulpy to me in a way that didn't quite gel with, with what had gone mm. before. And the stuff at the end as well, it just felt a little um, a little overblown to me. I, I, I would have 
preferred something more subtle, I think, because the, the, the rest of the writing I thought was really good. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I tend to side a bit more with Matt on this. I, I know where you're coming from there. But, you know, for me, the whole story does hang together. It gels nicely. And, um, yeah, there are definitely differences in tone all the way through, but I don't, I don't see that as a weakness. Yeah, it's just varied, that's all. Yeah, but yeah. overall, a good story. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not my favourite of Wagner's stories. I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, that would probably be River of Night's Dreaming, but, you know... A lot this more is sex a... in there. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Uh, but this is, yeah, this is definitely up there. If you enjoyed this, then, you know, do seek out other of Wagner's work. I mean, if you like Sword and Sorcery, as I said, the Kane books are back in print. Unfortunately, his other horror stories tend to be quite expensive to get hold of. Yep. Um, but if you get a chance to pick up any of his collections, you know, at a reasonable price, you know, I do recommend them. Yeah, especially in a lonely place. Mm. Oh, yeah, some great stories in there. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous tomes.com mm-hmm.